Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Steve, and we've been, uh, we've been working through the Gospel of John, and uh, we've been seeing this amazing message about who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. That is an incredible message in this world. We've seen who Jesus is, we've seen his nature, we've seen his character, we've seen the miracles that he's performed, and they all serve as signs that point to who he is, that he really is the divine Christ. He is God. And we also find in this gospel a few points that I'd call bookends, and they really spell out John's gospel message in short, And he has a number of these that are at the beginning of his gospel. And then he fills in much of his gospel with the things that Jesus has done and has said that point to the truth of those those messages. And then he comes back and he reiterates those toward the end of his gospel. And so they're like these bookends. Um, And our passage today is one of those bookends. And so um, it's really a fitting cap for us for the spring. So we're going to actually, as of today, wind down the Gospel of John. Uh, And next week, we are going to jump into a summer series that we're calling Summer Seminars. And so they're really talking about the foundations of our faith and also the the underpinnings or the, the, the purposes for why we're pursuing the disciple by doing um, uh, discipleship program. And so um, uh, throughout the summer, we're going to learn about those things and we're going to try even a Q&A session at the end. So there will be some interacting uh, that goes on with that. And then we're going to pick up with the Gospel of John again in the fall. And so that's going to start with the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is talking about um, uh, this new covenant that he is creating with his disciples. And he introduces the Lord's Supper that we're going to take today. And that um, he, he then prays for his believers and for the whole world that they will come to know who he is. So we'll pick that up in the fall. So our passage of scripture today is the last section of John chapter 12. And it has some layers to it. And so it's helpful to conceptualize in order to understand what John is really getting at. And so we're going to just take a really brief flyover of these layers. So the first layer is what I was calling these bookends. And so again, it's just um, these messages that he says about who Jesus is, and then how he illustrates those, and then a reiteration of that at several points in his gospel. And then the second layer is that our passage, like the, the rest of the last two chapters, is dealing with faith or lack thereof. So there's a contrast between those who have placed faith in who Jesus is, they've understood these truths about Jesus, and those who have not. And so we're framing this in the structure of faith. And so what John is getting at is that there are these religious leaders that should have known who Jesus is because of their position, because of their time in Scripture, because they were supposed to be the go-betweens between God and the rest of Israel. And yet they've failed to truly come to know who Jesus is, or for their own reasons they've rejected him. 
And so they did not see what others did. We even heard last week that there were these Greeks who came to seek out Jesus. They understood who he was when the religious leaders didn't. So they didn't see that really it's the faith in the prophets that testifies to Jesus. It's faith in the Father that places value on Jesus and faith in Jesus' message leads to a security in him, an eternal security. And we're supposed to walk away with this clear picture that Jesus has been sent by God and is God. He's not just a man operating on his own. He, his miracles, and his message all come directly from the Father. And so there's an invitation here to faith in him as Lord and God. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and uh, open to John 12. We're going to start in verse 37. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, please raise your hand. We've got them available for you. Anyone? All right. So uh, as you're turning there, um, I'll just share with you, uh, when I first came and candidated, I shared with you that I, I came to Saving Faith at age 15. And in my early teens, I went to church with my grandma. And uh, we went to a church that didn't really preach the Word of God. Um, it was mainly kind of uh, anecdotes about life. And, um, you know, after I became a believer, I started to recognize that things weren't all right in that church and that my grandma herself didn't really believe. As we'd talk about the gospel, she would say things like, I don't need salvation. She was a very moral woman. She was a wonderful woman, but she had not placed faith in Jesus for her salvation. She felt she didn't need to do that. Maybe you have people in your lives who, who feel that way. And so we would try talking about faith often as we met, and, and I'd try to share the gospel with her, but often it would become kind of circular, and it wouldn't go anywhere. And so I would pray for her. And I prayed for her for 17 years. If you have anybody in your life who has been hardened against the gospel, don't stop praying for them. Because at age 100, one day I received a phone call. And my grandma said to me, you know, I've just realized that I don't know the Bible and I really feel the need to know more about the Bible. Would you help me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, grandma, definitely. Um, and so uh, we started reading the Bible together and we did discuss it. Uh, and uh, after a few months, I got another phone call and she said, you know, I'm just realizing that uh, there are a number of people where I live that, that don't know Jesus. And I really think they need to know Jesus. I need to share the gospel with them. Especially these care aides and, and nurses who happen to be Muslim. And so I'm going to start sharing my faith with Muslims. Okay, Grandma, you go! <laughs> and so we'd talk about how to do that in a winsome way. And, uh, and it was just really amazing to see this transformation that started to occur in her life. And I really, truly believe that my grandma became a believer at age 100. 
And she had two good years of sharing her faith with people before a decline and her passing at age 103. God gave her spiritual eyes to see. Seventeen years of prayer. And he gave her spiritual eyes to see. He gave her a love for Jesus. We need those kinds of eyes. We need eyes that have been renewed through faith in Jesus Christ. Even if we have placed faith in Jesus, we need that constant renewal. Let's read our passage with that in mind. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would put and be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak my, on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So over the last few weeks, we've been seeing how these religious leaders of Judea are not able to wrap their heads around Jesus, who he is. They don't really believe that he's from God, much less that he is God. And in their skepticism, they are now standing in opposition. And that's going to lead to a showdown and toward Jesus' crucifixion. But they don't understand what that's going to accomplish. John here quotes two passages from the book of Isaiah. The first one from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. This Messiah who's uh, coming with a mission of salvation, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And the second is from Isaiah 6 about God hardening the religious leaders of Isaiah's day. And that that hardening is going to lead to a judgment on the nation prior to God drawing them back to faith in him and restoring them as a people. It's going to be through God's actions that he saves his people, not through theirs. 
God had revealed what he was going to do long before he did it. It's all over the Old Testament. We're even told in Luke 24, after Jesus arises from the grave, he goes and he meets with two of his disciples who are walking along the road. And for some reason, they're not able to recognize who he is. And they're talking about all the things that have just happened to Jesus. And it says that beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Those scriptures were the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a roadmap to who Jesus is. It points to him as Messiah. It points to him as God. And so we've been given this roadmap. And if the religious leaders had had open hearts to see these things, they would have acknowledged who Jesus is. But they didn't. We need to see that faith in the prophets and what they wrote testifies to Jesus, who he is, what he accomplished. Even the Greeks who came to see Jesus understood that. But the religious leaders didn't. And so John is making the point that this is a heart condition kind of thing. Their hearts are hardened. and That puts them on this crash course against God. Hardness of heart is, first and foremost, a natural human situation. So what the Bible tells us is not that we can save ourselves and just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and just believe that this is actually a work that God does in us. That on our own, we're actually left in this sinful and broken state. And that we need salvation. And that God is the one to provide it. We also have a tendency to just look at what we can sense, what we can touch, what we can produce. And so the material things of this world often take our vision off of who God is and what he's accomplished for us. Anybody ever struggle with that? I'll, I'll admit I do. There are times where, I mean, right now we're looking for a house. And I'm just seeing price tags. It's like, oh, Lord. <laughs> but where the Lord calls, he provides. Amen. We need to trust that he is going to provide for us. Obey. Trust and obey. There is no other way, right? Yeah. Amen. Because of that materialism, because those things can get in the way between us and God, um, it, it often leaves us feeling unfulfilled. And so uh, talking with many unbelieving friends, they freely admit that things aren't all right. They, they may not believe, but they, they, they struggle with this hole in them. It's what C.S. Lewis, that very quotable guy, called the God-shaped hole in each one of us. God has placed these pangs in us and also a sense of wonder and awe so that we would be drawn to him. And yet our flesh fights against finding our satisfaction in God. It wants to find satisfaction in what we can control. And for many people, there's also this intentional hardening that occurs against God. 
And that can come from depression or feelings of being mistreated. It could come from personal goals, the things that we want to accomplish on our own. And if, if we were to give those things up to follow God and what he's calling us to, we might miss out somehow or we wouldn't accomplish the big goals that we would want. And that is dangerous ground because it leads to an intentional opposition by choice. That draws us away. Thomas Aquinas was an, a medieval monk and he was a theologian. And he once said, to the one who has faith, no explanation. And what he means by that is of God or the mode of salvation um, is necessary. But to the one without faith, no explanation is enough. That's our natural situation. And so when we're in this spot, we're on that dangerous ground, we're in this desperate war for eternity with God, whether we know that or not. And God can pull us back from this, but if we willingly reject the ways that he comes to us to, to draw us back to himself, I don't know if anybody, any of you have experienced that, but when you're in sin or when, when things are going wrong, you see the olive branch. Those people come into your, your life and speak to you about the gospel. And if you reject that, we see in places in Scripture that, that God can harden, give us over to our desires, to our hardness, and actually be the one who then hardens us. And that's what we're seeing in this passage. That these religious leaders have so opposed God over and over and over again. They opposed the Messiah for their own purposes. That God has handed them over to their own hardness. And yet, we're told throughout scripture that that is not God's desire for us. That is not his heart toward us. He does not want for us to be hardened. God says in Ezekiel 18, Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God is never going to seal a person for destruction against their own will. But he's also not going to use his sovereignty in a way that removes our responsibility of what we do with his revelation in scripture. Even so, God is able to open up our eyes and open up our hearts to him. We hear so many stories of people like Lee Strobel or Rosaria Butterfield who took it on themselves to try to debunk the Bible and try to, uh, to uh, um, undermine the gospel message and in the process wound up believing in the gospel message, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and it changed their whole lives. Or like my grandma, who spent so much time around God, but not with him. And yet the Lord in those last years, opened her eyes and gave her this love for his word and love for Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And so in Isaiah 6, what we're seeing here is um, 
that when the prophet sees the glory of God, he's amazed by how holy and how good God is. His glory is filling the temple. And his reaction is to acknowledge how sinful he is, that he is undone before this God. There is no room here for self-righteousness. There is no room for saying, hey, we're on equal footing with God. It is that God is good and I need his salvation. And what happens is God cleanses him and puts him into a right disposition with him to be able to take back a message of both judgment and salvation to the hardened hearts of Israel. What do we do when we're confronted by the glory of God? John tells us that Isaiah was actually seeing the glory of Christ. That might seem odd. When we look at Isaiah 6, we see that he sees God in the temple. His glory fills the temple. And he's saying that this is actually about Jesus. And this fits with his claim from chapter 1, one of these bookends, that the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. But also his message is that the message that God gave Isaiah to the people of Israel was one of ultimate salvation. That God was going to do this work in Israel. That it wasn't going to be a work that they could do on their own. So God was going to save them. And John is saying that this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. That when Isaiah is seeing God's glory, he's actually seeing the glory of Christ Jesus. And this isn't just John's idea. We shouldn't say, hey, this is one person's thought here. No, all the apostles are seeing this. Paul, for example, says in Colossians 1, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy For God was pleased to have all his fullness. Wait, how much fullness? All. All All his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So John is once again telling us that Jesus is God. He holds all the glory and the honors of divinity. In another one of these bookends, he tells us that his purpose in sharing all these things about Jesus, it says um, that they're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Who can give life to the dead? God. Only God. But it's Jesus who's giving us life. 
In, and so what we need to do is see this as an invitation for us to look on Christ Jesus, to have an open heart toward him and his mission for us. And then in verses 42 and 43, we see that the hardness of these religious leaders at the top have created a culture of hardness, a culture that opposes God and his salvation. And so even among the leaders who did believe, they needed to do so in secret. What a concept. They've so created a culture that the very ones who are supposed to help people find God are actually causing them to oppose God. What a juxtaposition. What a broken situation. And there's something that's gotten in the way. It says here they loved human praise more than praise from God. And we should take that as a warning for ourselves. That we don't fall into that same trap. We need to recognize that there is social pressure. The things that we surround ourselves with, the material things that we run after, can pull our hearts away from God. And so this echoes another bookend from John chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and they won't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. So as you are seeking to have this open heart toward Jesus, as you're looking for him, don't let this world, all these material things, the social pressures that might be out there, drag you away from that gospel message of who Jesus is. Be on your guard. And Jesus describes himself as the light as well, not just John. He says that he's come into the world as a light, and the one who believes in him does not believe in him alone, but also in the one who sent him. So I have all these conversations with people who don't believe that Jesus is God, whether it's online or through different venues. Um, and, and some of them have just rejected the gospel entirely, so it's just a matter of they don't believe any of it. But there are others who don't believe that God would take on flesh or could because they're trying to hold on to a doctrine of God's otherness or transcendence, that he is so separate, so other, that he would never take on flesh. And so they're trying to defend God, but they have failed to really comprehend what both the Old and the New Testaments are pointing toward. That Jesus is God. God in flesh. And that is a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. But Jesus is the light of the world. He has come as a divine light by which we see God and his heart for us. And this is echoing another bookend from John 1 made and without him nothing was made that has been made in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it 
The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is a light that points to the Father and illustrates who he is and his heart for us. So this difficult concept of the, the triunity of God is important for us to understand. So unfortunately, with some of the, 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 the shifting or the corrupting that has happened through human thought, people posit that, that, that Jesus is not divine at all, that he is just a man, or that um, you have God, and there are two agents, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that work for him. Or even that um, God is three persons that come in three different, um, I'm sorry, that he's one being, but he comes in three different persons at three different times. None of these things are how the Bible describes it. Instead, what we see is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in triunity, what we call the Trinity, at work at the same time. They each had their role in creation and in our redemption. And yet they're always acting in unity and agreement. Jesus has been sent to us by the Father. Jesus has been sent to us by God and yet is God. And that fact should point us to God's goodness. Think about that. It means that Jesus is not set against the Father. In some theologies, there's this idea that the Old Testament and the New Testament are set against each other. That Jesus is somehow freeing us from God in the Old Testament. And that's not the case. Instead, what we're seeing here is that God has created the plan of salvation from the very beginning, and it is Jesus who is working it out. God's intention toward us is good. He wants us to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther once said, If you want to see the smiling face of God, look on Christ. Jesus has been sent so that we should not remain in the darkness of separation from the Father. And that means it's the Father's will too. And we should take that again as an invitation to come to the Father because he's good. Because Jesus is God and has been sent by God, that means his message is also from God. The message of the gospel is that we humans have been broken by sin. We stand in need of a savior because we can't save ourselves. But that God has faithfully provided a means for our salvation, that we could have eternal relationship with him and that his heart is good toward us. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need that message desperately. God is drawing 
all people to himself. And that is a bigger gospel. That is a bigger concept than what these religious leaders could have possibly dreamed of. They wanted a Messiah who was going to turn the tables on Rome and set up this Jewish hegemony over the world. And God wanted better. Instead, he's going to draw the whole world to himself through faith in Jesus. But because God is holy, there also must be an end to sin and rebellion. And so Jesus acknowledges here that there is a judgment that is coming for sin. There is a judgment. But again, God does not want any to perish. And so it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit that God has not yet poured out that judgment on this world. So our men's ministry met last Saturday and we were talking through the day of judgment from Revelation and from 2 Peter chapter 3. And there's this really important verse in 2 Peter 3 that says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. And that promise is that he will judge this world. And he will bring all things right in the end. So the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, the thing that we're going to celebrate here in a moment, is the reason that he came. And this is echoed in another bookend in John 3, 17 through 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This isn't just John's message. This is Jesus' message. And that means it's God's message for us. Jesus didn't speak on his own, but only what he was commanded to say by God the Father. And that should be such an encouragement to us. If we want to see the smiling face of God, let's look on Jesus. If you or people that you know are struggling with certainty about salvation or what's coming in the future, what it might look like to have an eternity with or without God, invite them to look at Jesus. Invite them to study John, the Gospel of John with you.